0: Good morning. What a beautiful day, isn't it? You know, I think um, often people find themselves walking a balance beam between feelings of failure and faking it. Those kind of feelings that make you feel inadequate, that you don't measure up, that you just, you've tried really hard, but you just didn't get there, versus, on the other hand, that time's going feel those things, but I'm going to fake it and let people think that I've actually made it, and that happens on all kinds of occasions, because I think many people have experienced the difficulties of failure, a divorce, bankruptcy, demotion, an F on a paper. People come out of those experiences on a daily basis, where you fail to follow through on someone for someone. You don't do quite what you would hoped you said you would do. And in some way or another, you fall short and you feel a sense of failure. Or on the other hand, you try really hard to make sure that people don't see that you feel that way and that you haven't really messed up and that you haven't really done some things and so you can live with that sense of just trying to get by, faking it. And I sometimes think we fall on either side of that equation. And whenever the pressure to perform gets elevated at times beyond the reality of our own situation, or whenever perfection becomes more important and takes a greater place than just mere living and maybe seeking to do your best or or striving for excellence, life becomes consumed with feelings of failure or the need to fake it like you made it. Tom Peters, in a book he wrote years ago called Thriving on Chaos, he says how this push for perfection in the business world actually destroys a company. It's so frightening to observe, as I repeatedly do, organizations where the fear of revealing the tiniest of errors is sky high. Here's what ensues. Small failures are individually hidden and fester until they accumulate, causing big failures much further down the line. Small failures, since they are unacceptable, do not quickly lead to those kind of minor adjustments that can make a difference. Data are faked or very liberally or partially interpreted so that failures can be seen as successes or or just near misses. Data are hidden from those in other functions who could help because the lead function boss doesn't want to lose face with his or her peers. And he goes on and he lists all these things that take place. In an environment where there's a push towards perfection, there's a push to, to perform beyond what's reality. And he ends with one, he says, truth, fun, speed, all go down the drain when that takes place. When the pressure to perform is out of place, then the fear of failure, the lack of truth, the, the joy is robbed because there's a need to look good and there's a temptation to save faith. And it creates a community that becomes superficial and fake. Happens in businesses. Happens on athletic teams. In religious organizations. It happens in families. And it can happen in your individual life. And you know that when Paul was writing to the Galatians, it was this very tendency that he was so afraid of. He had lived this kind of life within a group of religious people who strived for this and created this kind of environment that I just read about. He'd been writing to these people in Galatia And they had actually gotten two messages. You see, Paul came with a message that that brought about the fact that you could be real and honest and it's the best way to live before God and before others and to grow and and to know this truth and to live this out as you seek to live by both the grace and the truth of God as he comes in and he helps us see where we're off and, and that he gives us the power to make those adjustments. And so he came and he said, you know, I just want you to know that when it comes to religious life, When it comes to building a relationship with God, it is a gift, totally. By His grace that you trust Him. The Gospel is not a demand, but an offer. It's not a list of what to do, said Paul, but it's a message of what's been done. God's message through Jesus was not what we needed to do, that we needed to try harder or measure up or earn God's love through our own efforts but that we could rest and receive and accept love from God because of the work that He had done through Jesus. That's the message He brought. That's the message they received. That's the message that unlocked all kinds of joy and and excitement for life and and allowed for the energy of God to begin to pour through their lives and begin to, to heal their relationships and actually bring physical healings and allowed for them to do things. And they were just awed by this. Until another message came along, because soon after Paul left town and they began to kind of settle in around this message, another group of people came along and their names were, they were called the Judaizers. People who had come from Jerusalem. And they, they began to share with them that Paul gave them some of the message, but not all of it. They were the people, these Judaizers, who were the real um, ones who came from the real apostles with the real Gospel. And Paul was right about Jesus and about believing in Him, but he forgot something incredibly important and that was the law. With God's promise to save came this as well, that we had a a duty to follow the law, that we had things that we needed to do in order to do those things that would allow for us to be the kind of people that God wanted us to be so that He could express His love in our life. Well, a question was rattling, I think, in the back of the minds of these Galatians. And it was this, if God accepts me on the basis of what he's done in Jesus, and these guys are coming along telling me I need to follow the law, how does this work? What's the place of the law? They make a pretty good case. They talk about Moses and you read about the Old Testament and there's a whole bunch of stuff around the law, the law and the prophets. So what is the place of the law and what is its purpose? Paul wants us and he wants them to know both its proper place within regard to living with God, the law's proper place, and its purpose. And if you you don't have that straight, it messes with you personally. It messes with you with regard to the family and relationships you're seeking to be involved in. It messes with the, the kind of community in a church you're trying to build. It messes with the kind of businesses and the athletic... I mean, if that... Proper place of performance gets out of balance. And isn't kept in its right, purposeful relationship. You're going to have problems. So Paul answers these questions in chapter 3, verses 15 through 25. And he, he answers two questions. First is this. He says, they're asking themselves, did God change his mind by adding a law? Did, he, did God actually begin with the promise unveiling this trust, and then at some point come along because things were really messed up and create a standard that we should follow. And the second was, what's the purpose of the law? Two basic questions. The first one, didn't God change the promise by adding the law? Look at verses 15 through 18 and really look through 19 and 20 as well. Didn't God change the promise by adding the law? And his answer is simply no. So let's go to the next verses. We don't need to do those. Just kidding. Let's look at these verses and understand what Paul has to say. Note how important the promise of God to Abraham is. He says it is superior in every way to the law. When you put it in its proper place, you'll see that the promise always is is in priority and preeminence to this whole idea of the law and performance through your own efforts. And it's important that you understand this, he says. See, he has just been talking about the fact that the, the promise came before the law in the verses we looked at last week, but now he wants to talk about the fact that it's, it needs to be in its proper place, not only in priority, but in preeminence. In every way, the promise is far greater than the law, which will lead to an understanding of its purpose. So if you read these verses, verse 15, brothers, let's take an example from everyday life, just as one can, no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been dully established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. You notice in there six, seven, eight times he uses the word promise or covenant. And in the actual Greek, this word is almost the same throughout it. It can mean either covenant or the idea of a human will. And it's, it's probably more the idea of covenant because it's the very same word that he uses there throughout the Greek. Septuagint, which was one of the, 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 the books that Paul most read the Bible from. That's the word he uses, the idea of covenant. This more idea that is promise. And if you're going to understand the purpose of the law, he says, you need to establish the place of the law in God's dealing with you. And so his point in verses 15 through 20 is this. God's will, which he made through his promise and He revealed to Abraham, is primary, essential, takes precedence to the law in dealing with mankind. Simply stated, here's what he's saying. God's promises to love, to save, deliver, set free, empower, and fill anyone who puts their full, complete trust and confidence in Jesus and not in their own efforts, is what is most important in your life. Keep it always center. It's essential. And so to prove that God's promise hadn't changed, Paul makes a number of quick points, and we'll just go through these somewhat quickly. The first is in verse 15. He says, Take an everyday example from a human will. Verse 15, let's take an example of everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to the human covenant or a will that has been established. So it is in this case with God's promise. A human will, we know, is it's irrevocable, it's unchangeable, it's unalterable. Once it's been ratified, when the person has actually passed away, you can't change it, you can't do anything with it. And whatever the precise legal background that Paul may be using here, his point is this. If this is true in everyday affairs when it comes to a human will, how much more with God? So whatever you think about Moses and about this law coming, you need to understand simply this. That when you look at a will and a covenant that has been made, it cannot be altered years later, amended by anyone else. When you look at how two people make an agreement today, they write up a will or make a promise, and this agreement can't be changed by a third party. Even our human courts would attest that a third party who would come along years later and change that agreement, they will know that that's illegal. The only one who can change it are the ones who make it. And to add or delete anything would not stand up in court. That's Paul's point from an everyday standpoint of life. And then he goes on. He says, verse 16 and verse 17. He talks about the continuity of this promise. There, there isn't. It hasn't been interrupted in some way that God goes, oh boy, I blew it. I messed it up. I better add some law because the promise isn't sufficient. See, when God made this this promise to Abraham, He knew man's inability. He saw that. He saw it very clearly in Adam and Eve and through all those people up to the point of Abraham. He stepped out because He's God knowing what He needed to do and He made a promise. God was fully aware of Abraham's sin and He's fully aware of our weakness. And so He encouraged Abraham by saying, says Paul, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Verse 16, he says, and wants to make this clear, the Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed. The idea being that he gave it to Abraham and it stood completely fully till the time of Jesus, which at that point of fulfillment, it would be a blessing then to all people. The message says this well. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his descendant you will observe that Scripture in the careful language of a legal document does not say to descendants, referring to everybody in general, but to your descendant. The noun note is singular, referring to Christ. So Paul's made this little aside, and then he goes on in verse 17. He says, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. And Paul quotes Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, which says 430 years. Sometimes in the New Testament it says that time period is 400 where they round off numbers. But in, in, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, which Paul is quoting, he says 430 years, and actually Exodus is interesting. It says, and not one day longer. As if God was saying, I knew exactly how long I needed to keep these people in captivity to, in order to do the kind of things I needed to do in their heart. And I just, as a little aside, because Paul likes to do this, I'll do it. God knows exactly what's going on in your life. He knows your desire for Him to work and to move. And He knows and He hears your prayers and He knows the exact day in which you will act and fulfill it. So stay faithful. Trust Him. The promise continues, he says, unbroken from Abraham to Jesus and then to the end of the age. So the promise superarches all, but it It was actually given back at Adam and Eve when he said that, that there would be one who would come, who would actually crush the heel, it would come through the seed. Again, the same idea, descendant of the woman. And God didn't make this promise and then 430 years later go, oh, I'm going to change the ground rules on you. There's also the unconditional nature of the promise is what he says in verse 18. For if the inheritance depends on the law, if you are receiving an inheritance and it depends on your efforts to do certain things to receive it, then we're in trouble in the sense he's saying. Then it no longer depends on a promise. It's taken precedence over the promise. See, keep the promise in its right place and the law where it should be. When you understand the purpose of it, then as you live by the promise, you'll be set free to walk in God's grace and His goodness. Through trust. He says, but it is in God's grace that it was given to Abraham through a promise. There were no strings attached to this promise. It was given by grace, freely based on belief, not on your behavior. Your relationship with God is not based on your behavior. Your your relationship of His love and His forgiveness is not based on your behavior. Your experience of that love and that relationship with Him and others will be based on your obedience. But your relationship of His love and His forgiveness and and all that He wants to do in your life is not based on that. It is based on the trust that He provides. And if you get that messed up, you're going to start putting performance above that relationship. And the law is temporary. Verse 19a, at this point... He. You can't help but start talking about the purpose, because if you're talking about the place of the law, you start to meld into the purpose of it because you have to get there. But as he's doing that, he says, when what then is the purpose of the law? We'll look at in just a second. But he says it's temporary because it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. In a sense, he's saying. God didn't change His mind and 430 years later go, oh, you know the promise isn't working, I'm going to add the law so that now it's the promise. Plus the law, He's saying, no, there's a whole different purpose for it. So I want you to know it's really a parenthesis. It happened at a certain point until a certain point. The law was given. It happened from Moses till when the seed Christ would come. And that was the parenthesis. It was temporary. The law is permanent. This relationship with God will go on forever. He's making an incredible point here. He's saying in this short period of time, the law was given, and there's a purpose for it, and we'll get into that again in a second, but it was given for a certain period of time to produce a certain something. And then at that point, it's done. The law was inferior to the promise in every way. He goes on to verse 19, the last part of verse 20, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. In a sense, he's making this point, even when it comes to the promise. The promise was a direct revelation firsthand given to Abraham. In the same way, the promise of God is a a direct experience that you can have through the Holy Spirit. You and God, not dependent on me, not dependent on some other religious or some kind of pastoral person or some kind of person who is, in your mind, a saint, it is you and God. It is first hand. The promise is always a first hand you and God experience. Whereby the the law. It's not even second hand. He says it's actually third hand. You know, it, it's, it's a few stages down. You know, when you make a copy in, in the copy machine, then you make it again, you make it again. And each copy gets a little bit worse and a little bit. You know, just not as pure. He's basically saying the law is kind of like that in one sense. It is the, the pure, full will of God. But when it comes to the way it's been mediated, it begins by God who gives it to an angel, who gives it to Moses, who then gives it to the people. And he's never intended for any person ever to live in a relationship where you have to if you come to the church and then you listen to the pastor and then then he'll tell you what God no. Each and every person today, when you understand the priority of the place of the promise, has this ability to know God, to hear God, to, to understand His Word because He's given you His Holy Spirit, and to begin to, prayer, through prayer, know the impulses and moving of God in your life as you begin to hear that. And you're in community with other people who are growing and, and mature in Christ, and you begin to grow in that, And you, every person here, has that opportunity. Of a direct relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because He's deposited into your heart when you trust His Holy Spirit. That's what Paul wants them to know. Don't ever for a moment, because the law is inferior, it's temporary. It can't do what the promise, which puts you in relationship with a providing God who fulfills things in your life, can do. Paul answers this question so that you can know the place of the law in comparison to the promise. And when the law gets out of place, there will be problems. Here's the problem. When you start looking at the law and begin to start thinking about my life and what I have to do with God, your focus becomes what? On you. It does. It becomes focuses on you. And now you look at yourself and what you can and can't do. And failure begins to loom. And the ability then to have to fake. And if you create a community that lives by the law, it will be superficial. It will be far less than the life that God wants to take place in this community or in any place where you work or where you live. But when you begin to put the promise, this overarching relationship that God gives us through his Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ and the work he has done, and through the trust of that relationship with him. Who becomes the focus now? When you you blow it and you make the mistake and the Holy Spirit brings it to you, and the Holy Spirit is such a gentleman, he never comes around and goes, you rotten... Filthy person, when you hear that that's not God, that's your old tapes, that's demonic stuff, that's from the pit of hell. You you really we gotta hear this. When you hear these old tapes that make you feel and you've oh, you've blown it. That's the the law shows you the distance, but the Holy Spirit of God comes and says, Listen, you need to get things right because it's messing up your life. I love you so much. I have come to you so that you can find life in me. And God through the promises says, if you trust in me, if you look to me, I will fulfill what you need. And the focus goes to God and his grace and his love and his goodness and his power and his, his ability to do the things you can't do. Amen. God is not like a man. That he's just too dull and he's not smart enough that he would contradict himself some 430 years later and go, Ooh, I just didn't give him enough. God isn't fickle. He's not taken by surprise by your failure. You don't need to wonder if after some 430 years God goes, Oh, I better make a better plan. God is not like a man who's too weak, who's incapable of keeping his promise. He knew all the way back with Adam and Eve and he said there would be one who would come in your seed. He comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless everybody if you trust me that I will provide for you through this promise that there will be one who comes in your seed. He doesn't then 430 years later change it. He says it goes to the seed and I promised and I fulfilled and everyone who walks in that fulfillment will walk in the grace and the love and will begin to see their lives grow. You will see your marriages change. You will see the places you work and people around you change because God's in you. And you just have to believe and trust that. As he begins to gently show you those small things and those things that need to change. Sometimes they're big things. But he begins to work in your life. God is not like a man who says one thing and then does another, is Paul's point. When he promised and made a covenant with Abraham, when he made this will, he said he'd fulfill it and he did it in Jesus great verse for some of you who struggle with this idea of what God can do. Numbers 23, 19 and 20 states this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind to so speak and then not act as he promised and not fulfill. I have received a command to bless and he is blessed and I cannot change it. That is a truth for you in your life. God has said, if you will trust Me and you will understand that I have, through the work that I have done through Jesus, given you forgiveness forever and ever, and I have given you the Holy Spirit so that He can begin to move in your life and begin to change the things, all the patterns, all the generational things that you just think are so stubborn, that they're so stained, how do you get rid of them? God says, I will do it. Because I'll give you My Holy Spirit. And He says, when I promise to bless you, you you can bank on it. When you get the law out of place, you start looking at something else. Okay. So what? in the world is the purpose of the law. See, these Judaizers who would hear this would begin to get angry because what has happened is Paul has actually taken their feet right out from under them because what they were standing on was not on some promise on the grace of God and the goodness of God. They believed God was gracious and good and that he had mercy like a lot of people do today in a lot of churches, in a lot of religious organizations. They believe God's good and he's merciful and all these other things, but they also believe that if they kept the law and if they did these things combined with that somehow through their moral uprightness they've had a focus on themselves they would in some way please god and somehow find greater acceptance and find god at work in their life in ways that it wouldn't just happen through the promise and they're angry because he has taken away their stance on i am morally upright i am doing something i am Paul says, I glory in nothing but what? Not in what I can do. Paul did all kinds of things. Not in what I can do. In fact, whenever he started to boast that way, he felt stupid. He said, I boast in only what Jesus has done on the cross, which is the promise fulfilled. So what's the purpose? Four things, real quickly. The law restrains behavior at best. Do you watch all the CSI shows, all the investigator shows, all the forensic shows, all, anybody watch any of these shows? There's just a myriad of them out there today. Law and order. What's the whole point? Law brings order for people who are not believers is what Paul's point is. For a period of time, the promise was going, this people who were being brought out of Egypt out of a system of ruling were now as a community going to wander through a desert. God didn't really want them to go for 40 years through it, but they chose to go through 40 years. And in that 40-year time, before they got started, God says, let me share with you something. Here's what you need to have. You need some laws in order to keep you civil. And I'm going to give you 10 big ones. And they're not really big standards. They're the minimum OK, and so in Galatians says, what then is the purpose of law? it was added because of transgressions and the word in the Greek actually means to stray from a from a straight course intentionally. You're walking like this and you go, oh, you know, I think I want to go over here when God's saying go this way straight. And so he's saying for those who don't know him, those who do not have his grace and love operating in their life, he needs to set laws in place to restrain behavior because people will intentionally go a certain direction. So God gave the, Moses the law to help a whole bunch of people. They had some boundaries that had some consequences. And they regulated outward behavior, but they couldn't get inside and change the heart. The inner impulses were left unchecked. And you have to note the law emphasizes on what's external and its focuses on what you do. And it's not a bad thing. You may not murder, but you the law can't do a thing about the hate in your heart. You may not commit adultery, but the law can't do a thing about the lust in your heart. You may not take your friend's car, but the law can't do a thing about your envy over it. The law was an outside job. Inferior in every way. Transforming, interchange, it couldn't do it. But it could keep some order restraining behavior. The law, secondly, reveals sin. Galatians 3.19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law is again like the straight line that shows how we intentionally deviate from it. The law, like the straight line, shows you if you're you know, asked to walk a straight line and you have trouble doing it for some reason. Um, or if you um, also um, have a ruler and you take a ruler and it measures when something comes up short, the law is like that. It's like a mirror. The law is like a mirror that it shows you when there's dirt or, or a blemish on your face. The law is like a sign that says don't trespass. And what does the law do? It reveals sin. Not only does it reveal, it actually awakens sin. When you see a don't trespass sign, how many of you want to trespass? Be honest. Yeah. There's something in our hearts that goes, I don't want to walk this line, God. Thank you very much and I appreciate the help, but no. I want to see what's over there. I want to grab the fruit from the tree. And if there's no trespassing signs, we would never know that we trespass. So God gave the law for the purpose of it so that we could see our sin. And that's why Paul goes on and says the law produces brokenness. Galatians 3.21-23 Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. If you understand its purpose. For if a law could have been given that could impart life, you know, do interchange, then righteousness would have come by the law. But the Scripture, all that declares from the law to the prophets, all throughout the Torah, that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Every person does ne- could never measure up to the perfect standard of God. That's what the law does. The law was given for a purpose so that we could see that we're broken people, sinful people in need of Him. That our sin is such that it separates us from a holy and loving God. Our sin is such that it separates us in relationship with the people that we most love. Our sin is such that it so much destroys even our own inner sense of peace and our own inner sense of of, of integrity so that we can't grow as God wants us to grow, in ourselves, with others, and with Him. And because of that, we stand condemned by our sin, heading in a direction towards death, not just in this life, but in life forever, in eternity, which He calls hell. Unless God does something and you respond to it. And so He says the law produces brokenness. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who will, what? Believe. Not behave. Believe. Trust. And before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. And the word here, very important, you can underline it, locked up until faith should be revealed. The whole world, everyone has been bound up by this tendency to find life. Every one of us tries to find life apart from God. Every one of us seeks to find our sense of Fulfillment and in, in our life in all that we long for outside of that, but it never works. So in three twenty two, Paul says this: this is the testimony of all Scripture. And then verse twenty three, he says, prior to faith, we were held prisoners in the law, locked up, condemned to eternal death. So that in verse three twenty three, chapter three twenty three, locked up: this graphic word means to be shut in on all sides with no possibility of escape. The law wants us to see that we're broken and in need of repair. We are straitjacketed by the law. God put it there for that purpose so that we would look to the promise. Not try and live by the law, but that we would see how broken we are and out of our brokenness and despair and understanding of where we're heading and the fact that we are going to go this way forever unless in some way God restores us to this place of promise. And so we're straight-jacketed by every person in this room. There is no Houdini spiritually among us who can somehow escape the judgment of the law. The law is incredibly clear. No one is perfect. Everyone has failed. We are all helpless. We all fall short of this glory of God. Love isn't our first impulse. We're all triggered by fear. Everyone is motivated by me first. Sin is pandemic. If you're afraid of this, what is it again, swine flu? Nothing compared to the sin. A perfectly lived life that gains God's love by obeying the law says Paul won't happen. And if we're open and honest, we will see that we're broken in need of a new heart, new motivations, a new and a pure love. I was reading this a few weeks ago about this new group, the Kings of Leon. Anybody heard of the Kings of Leon? Yeah, We're a happening church. Anyway. It was in Rolling Stone magazine. How many read that? Anyway, um, this quartet, they've gone gold in the U.S. with record sales. And they're platinum three or four times over in the U.K. Uh, they're selling a staggering 1.8 million copies of their disc, their CD, more than the last Coldplay record, for those of you who are really in Six years ago, the kings were just, what they said, four scraggly, wasted kids. Now they enjoy luxury travel. Um, They have more money than they could imagine. I found this story fascinating. I'm reading this story. In the article called, God, the Devil, and the Kings of Leon, subtitled, Around the World with the Heartbreaking, Troublemaking, Earthshaking Band of the Southern Brothers. Austin Skaggs tells how these three brothers and one cousin rose to fame. These brothers grew up as preacher's kids. The boys' religious mandate was strict. They lived by the law. No movies, no music, but church music. No mixed bathing with girls, the Rolling Stone has to add, because the, the crowd they're talking to goes, mixed bathing, what's that about? No mixed bathing with girls, in parentheses. No competitive sports, no short pants, even while water skiing. Nathan, one of the band members, says, You're under the microscope. It was like TMZ before TMZ. God forbid you get caught going to a theater or watching TV. My dad was my idol growing up, says Caleb, one of the brothers. My dad was the best preacher, hands down. He would take a sentence this long, about an inch, he says, and his whole, and his whole sermon would be about these three words. And the biggest man in the room would be bawling his eyes out while he's preaching. And the kids would attend church five times a week until one day their dad, Ivan, began acting erratically. I guess, says um, Caleb, the pressure was getting to my dad being the leader of the flock. Things were really up and down depending on how his nerves were. And their dad, Ivan, then began to drink. Caleb says, rather matter-of-factly, He was trying to be perfect, but in the process, he was imperfect. Years later, Ivan finally left the pastorate, and when Ivan left the pulpit, Caleb became disillusioned. I was going to be a preacher, he said. It was everything I knew. My heart got broken seeing that it was impossible to be perfect, so I said to myself, What the? I can fill in the blank. I have to go the opposite way. I couldn't be a sober man. I that just bums me out. God, God didn't give us the law so that we would try really hard and be perfect. And when our imperfection is revealed, and and, and you go to a church and you try harder and harder and you try and measure up and try and do these things, and you feel like you can't keep, finally do it, then you start faking it. and You're faking it, and then you're you're going and you you have these habits that you don't want people to know about. And you we create churches like that. Heaven forbid. The law was meant to show the brokenness like this guy said, now that I saw it, and I saw it in my dad, here's the final thing the law does. It leads you to Christ. Galatians 3, 24 and 25. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith, not by trying to do stuff in our behavior and be perfect enough. Can you imagine growing up and preaching short sentences so that people are bawling in the pews and yet not giving life because all you're giving is law. And we get got people around us living daily. And one of the reasons we don't share our faith is because I don't think we deeply know in our own hearts this grace of God that is so overwhelming that people who are living by the law go, oh, you're all talking about grace. It's simplistic. It's dumbed down. It's this baloney. It is the love of God that changes the heart as we walk with Him. He produces His Holy Spirit within us that gives us a desire to walk in obedience, to follow His Spirit, which may not look like the person next to you. But it will correspond fully with the word of God. And he uses the word pedagogue. So the law was put in charge and lead us Christ that we might be justified in faith. Now that faith has come, we no longer are under the supervision of the law. The pedagogos was not like a pedagogue, a teacher that we have today. He's not so much an educator as he was one who led people to Jesus. The idea was that you were so broken, you came to your brokenness, you understood that you needed God more than anything else. You couldn't do it in your own self. You can't make your marriage work. You can't make the money you were hoping to make. You can't do this or that or this. And you come in this sense of brokenness and it leads you to God. That's what the. It's like a bus driver. You know when you give your kids to a bus driver? You give your kids to a bus driver in hopes that they'll get your kids to school harmlessly, right? Well, in that day, that's what this pedagogue was. It was a person... See, they didn't like school even then, kids. They actually would hire a servant who would help lead them to the school. And Paul says the law was temporary. It's not for you as a believer. Once you have the Holy Spirit... God begins to change your heart when you walk in His forgiveness and His love and obedience begins to, to, to pour through you by His Holy Spirit. Because all of it is meant to lead you to a place of grace. God. in a relationship that is directly with Him. That as we begin to live at people around us, look at it and go, "Gosh, I want some of that. Lord Jesus, I just want to say thank you for loving us and for giving us this incredible gift of your promise. And I pray that we would never, ever allow the law in this church, in this place, in this community, in our lives to take precedence over this relationship we have with you. May our focus always be on you and your grace and your love and the truth that comes through you as we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.